Thank you, Jane. Uh, my name is Randy Shile, and uh, it's a privilege to be with you again. If um, you're new to the church, I'm uh, a pastor, served at uh, Stonebridge Church for a couple of, I guess, almost three decades. And now I'm semi-retired and working with a group called Charles Simeon Trust, and we try to equip through workshops, Bible teachers, to be able to study Scripture and communicate it with others. Uh, Pastor Matt is a good friend, and um, appreciate your prayers for Matt and Carrie and their ministries in this next couple of weeks. And uh, I was really excited as I was shaving this morning, thinking about coming here to Cornerstone uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, I heard a rumor and maybe someone will have to correct me if it's not true, but I heard a rumor that you're thinking about sending a mission team to Chemnitz to visit uh, Stephen and Meg Collier. Maybe it's just a discussion point right now. It's happening. All right. Good, good. That's great. Uh, Stonebridge has had a relationship with the Chemnitz Church for 16 years, and um, it's wonderful to see how when the problem in Ukraine developed that uh, Chemnitz became a base, Chemnitz, Germany, a base of operation for a ministry to Ukrainian refugees. Thank you for being a part of that and supporting it. Really appreciate that. The other thing I was thinking about was 23 years ago this month, Tony and Lisa Weber and a few others stood in front of Cedar Hills Evangelical Free Church, and said, pray for us because we want to plant a church in Marion. And I have to say, I prayed for them, but I didn't believe it could happen. And yet, and yet, God in his faithfulness allowed this church to be birthed. And so I just want to give thanks to God and to you for being a faithful congregation in this community for 23 years. That's something to celebrate, isn't it? Why don't we just give thanks to God for that? That's exciting. 23 years. It just went by like a blink of an eye. People today have questions. I've had these four questions myself. You may have asked them, who am I? That is, what is my identity? Who am I really? Where am I headed? What does my future hold? Third, why am I here? What is my purpose in life? Why am I taking up room on this planet and breathing air why am I here? And the fourth one is, how can I find help and hope? In a world of suffering, especially, we wonder where is the hope? I want you to think about this because the church is a unique community. I'm all in favor for groups like Rotary Club, Kiwanis Club. 
I like the work that United Way is doing. There are many causes in which we can be involved. But what makes the church unique is that week after week, we proclaim good news. It's good news, the gospel, which acquaints us with who God is and then knowing him, who we are. That's the primary importance of the church, especially in this confusing day. Now, the reason I bring this up is because Pastor Matt asked me to preach the book of Romans this morning. You, you didn't, your hear, hearing was not a problem there, to preach the book of Romans. So, I went through my notes last night. It only took four hours. So, uh, relax. We'll just kind of walk through. You think I'm kidding, don't you? Uh, I don't want to interfere with your afternoon nap. So we will work through this. But Pastor Matt tells me that you're going to start a series on the book of Romans. So he said, could you, he said, we've worked through Romans 1, 1 through 17. And he said, could you just kind of give an overview message of the book of Romans? So I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And I would like to read the introduction of this great book. And then as we read it, my goal this morning is to motivate you or inspire you or encourage you to plunge into the book of Romans, to read it, to embrace it, to absorb its truths. Because if you do, those four questions that I mentioned previously will be answered. You will know who you are and where you're headed, and why you're here, and where your hope is. So let's read the Word of God, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Hear the Word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank God. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong 
That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Thanks be to you, Lord, for your word. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And in this letter from Paul to the Romans, we find the hope we need. We ask that you'd help us to understand it and to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we know that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter probably on his third missionary journey from the city of Corinth. We know that from the book of Acts. We see the connections in Acts 20. And we see that his desire is to um, explain what the gospel is to his friends in Rome. We know he had friends in Rome because of the last chapter of the book, which lists people that he knew, as well as Aquila and Priscilla, who were very close friends of the Apostle Paul. His goal is to go from Corinth, taking an offering from Gentiles to give it to the Jews in Jerusalem. That must have been quite a shock to the Jewish folks to receive an offering from Gentiles. And then, if everything went well, travel to Rome which he hopes will become a base of operations, to send him on to Spain. Uh, So in part, as one author said, the Apostle Paul is writing a fundraising letter (laughs) to the churches, multiple churches in Rome, to help help him on his way. Um, Paul did not plant the churches of Rome. He'd never visited Rome this point in his life. And someone might think, well, how did the churches in Rome come about? Well, we think, the best of our knowledge, that when the Holy Spirit came upon the church in Acts chapter 2, people became witnesses and were dispersed abroad, and some went to Rome and began to plant churches there. Primarily, these were Jewish people, planting the church, but over time, Gentiles would join them. There were new converts there. And by the time Paul was writing, the church in Rome was quite established. Why did Paul write the letter? Sometimes we focus on theology. We say, well, Paul wrote the letter to explain justification, how God justifies sinful people. And that, in part, 
is the reason he wrote it, but I don't think that's part of the larger purpose. Uh, A friend of mine shared an article with me from a fellow named uh, Will uh, Timmons. He's a lecturer at Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia, and he was helpful to me in understanding three primary purposes that Paul wrote the book. First was a missionary purpose. Uh, Paul wants the Roman churches to understand the gospel and to become a base of operation for his mission to Spain. And he needs their prayers. He needs their financial support. He needs their encouragement. Because he wants to come to Rome after delivering the gift to Jerusalem and then move on to Spain. We see uh, this larger purpose. You might be thinking, well, where do you see that in what we just read? Well, if you come to the chapter 15, verses 23 through 2033, you'll see that Paul feels as if he has shared the gospel in the regions, and now churches are planted, but his desire is to plant churches where Christ is not known. And so he wants to move on to Spain, where people haven't heard the gospel before. He has a missionary purpose in writing this. He needs their help. You see that even in the first chapter, where he talks about, I want to go, come to you and encourage you, but I want you to encourage me. There's a mutuality there that you see in his missionary purpose. Secondly, he writes for a pastoral purpose to encourage these churches to be unified so they can be healthy and effective witnesses of the gospel. You know, when you read Romans, it may not stick out to you at first, but this is a church that had problems with unity. They were divided. You see that when you begin to read chapter 14 and 15, people judging each other, uh, the weak and the strong. You see it in arguing over certain days that should be worshipped, certain foods that should be eaten. Uh, You know, we can't imagine in our day what it must have been like for Paul to receive this commission on the Damascus Road to take the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. And to think that Jewish people would begin to see the fuller picture of what Christianity is and be willing to welcome Gentiles into their midst. This must have been an extremely challenging problem. Sometimes we think in our day and age that we have problems in churches that need to be resolved, and we do. But can you imagine the challenges that the Apostle Paul faced? Uh, Historically speaking, we know that the Emperor Claudius became increasingly hostile toward the Jewish people of Rome, and in AD 49, he expelled them from the city. So from AD 49 until AD 54, when he permitted Jews to come back, Jewish people were dispersed abroad. That's why Aquila and Priscilla were dispersed. Now, can you imagine as a Jewish person leaving the church in the absence of Jewish people, this church continues to grow with Gentiles, 
And then as a Jewish person, you come back and everything's changed. You may have moved away for a while, come back to this church. You thought, oh, things have changed in the last five years. And this led to divisions. And so Paul has a missionary purpose here to encourage the church to be unified so they can effectively proclaim the gospel. Third, there's an apologetic purpose. By apology, I mean a defense. Paul needs to defend himself. As he writes this letter, and you're going to discover this as you work through the book, Paul has been attacked on many ways. Probably when the Jews left, uh, the Jewish Christians left Rome and became dispersed among other churches in the area, they learned of the controversy surrounding the Apostle Paul. Some said, he no longer teaches the law of Moses. And so Paul has to defend himself. He wasn't giving up the law. He just sees it as the being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They attacked him for not observing Jewish practices. And so over and over again in this book, you find, I mean, even verse 16 is a clue. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why did Paul say that? Because some people were saying, you're ashamed of the gospel. You're ashamed of a relationship with God through the Jewish practices. So he just said, no, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed even though I get into prison, beaten up, starving for the sake of the gospel. I'm not ashamed because I know it is God's means for salvation. So you see this apologetic purpose. So this is the way that I would summarize the message of Romans. Now, this is a preliminary draft statement, so you can write it down, but don't hold on to it very much because maybe Pastor Matt working through it with you, will uh, you'll come to a different view. But this is how I see it based upon my study of Romans up to this point. God is glorified when churches live in harmony under gospel grace and only then can they reach out effectively with zeal. That is, God is glorified when we as a community are so unified under gospel grace, under the undeserved love of God through Christ. And only when we're unified in that purpose can we effectively reach out with zeal. I don't know about you, but there are many terms in Romans that are hard to understand and can help us with this theme. I want to just define them. For a start, what does gospel mean? So often we're not clear in the gospel. This is a really good book. Jonathan Dodson wrote it, The Unbelievable Gospel. He calls it unbelievable because the way we share it is often people don't believe it. And he says, when we see it for what it is, it can be helpful in our outreach, our evangelism. Here's how he defines it, which I think is really helpful. The gospel is the good and true story that Jesus has defeated sin, death, and evil through his death and resurrection and is making all things new, even us. That's a good, simple definition. The core of the gospel, of course, is 1 Corinthians 15. 
Christ died according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised. But it also includes, as we just read in the introduction of Romans, the prophecies from the Old Testament pointing to Christ, the life that Christ lived, the death that he died, the resurrection that we celebrated last Sunday, his ascension to glory, and his continuous reign through the power of his Holy Spirit even to today. That's the message of the gospel. There's another term here, and you see it as the book is framed. You know, you can really learn about what the author intended to communicate as a message by looking at the start of the book and at the end of the book. And you see this term in Romans 1 and in Romans 15, the obedience of faith. What does that mean? Christopher Ashe, in his great book, Teaching Romans, says, The obedience of faith means bowing my knee in trusting submission to Jesus, the Lord, both at the start and all through the Christian life. So this obedience of faith, Paul is called to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles. And when they receive Christ, it's not just to be forgiven of their sins, but a bowing their knee throughout their whole lives. That's what that means for us. Thirdly, righteousness. What is righteousness? This word righteousness was so threatening to the great reformer Martin Luther that he would have nightmares. He would be so earnest trying to earn his righteousness with God because of the severe view of God that he would pray all night, literally wearing his knees, scabs on his knees. How can I ever be righteous in God's sight because I'm such a sinner? Well, here's good news. Righteousness is the act by which God brings people into a right relationship with himself. It's not something we earn. It's something God gives us when we trust in him for salvation. Now, those terms and many more you'll find as you get through Romans But the encouraging thing is that by meditating on these truths, embracing and absorbing them, we answer those questions. Who, where, why, and how? So let's begin our trek through Romans, shall we? Uh, We covered the first 15 minutes, and now we'll take the next three, uh, three and a half hours here just to work our way through Romans you know, I, I still remember growing up, my Sundays, we'd go to church as a family, and then my mom would put out the dinner, and, and it was roast beef, potatoes and gravy, five-cup salad. Can anything be more delicious than five-cup salad? And, and green bean casserole, and then there'd be dessert on top. It was so good. Romans is like that. Romans is like that. It is a meal like we can't believe. He starts out with this introduction. We just read it. He says, I've been called. I'm a servant of Christ to proclaim Jesus as king. Verses 1 to 7. God's son is David's descendant, heir to the throne, risen from the dead, God's appointed son, revealed in glory. And then in verses 8 through 15, he says... 
and I'm so thankful to know you, and I want to come and visit you, and I want us to be mutually encouraged because I'm eager to share the gospel with you. This word gospel comes up 12 times in the book of Romans, six times in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1. He says, I just can't wait to come and, and serve you and have you encourage me. And then in verses 16 to 17, he kind of gives the theme of the book, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power by which God rescues us and makes us righteous. You know, I think sometimes we don't understand the power of the gospel. I've, I've memorized the book. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know, great, great. Power of the gospel changed my life. But we have no idea of the incredible power we're talking about. We're talking about resurrection power. Uh, Jonathan Dodson uh, talks about this in his book, and he talks about the fact that the gospel has historical truth to it. It's of a real person who lived, Jesus Christ, and the impact he made on his society. It has historical meaning, and it also has um, personal meaning. The gospel is for us, and it also has a cosmic meaning. It changes the way we think about our mission. And when you come to Colossians chapter 1, you see that the gospel ultimately includes this Christ reigning over the universe, all powers in heaven and earth subjected to him. This is the gospel power we're talking about. Jonathan Dodson says, people have reasons for not believing the gospel of Jesus. Whoops, that's the wrong quote. Just want to read. Jesus came preaching a gospel of renewal, a message of spiritual renewal, exchanging ashes for mourning for a headdress of rejoicing, a message of cultural renewal, the repair of city walls and possession of cultural treasures, and a message of social renewal, the undoing of injustice, and sight for the blind. It's referencing Jesus' description of the gospel in Luke chapter 4, where he quotes Isaiah chapter 61 and why he came. He came to change the way we think, to change us, and to change our mission. That's what Paul is saying in this introduction. Now, if you believe this, I do need to give you a warning. If you say to someone, our only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it's the exclusive way that people come to God. That message will not be appreciated by your neighbors. Because what do they say? Oh, wait a minute. There are many ways to God. It's like a big mountain. Everybody's kind of making their way up. Now, the fallacy of that thinking is you tell a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Jewish person there's only one way to God, they're going to be offended too. They don't believe that any more than we do. But what this is telling us is that King Jesus is the king for everybody. So it's exclusive in that there's only one way to God, 
but it's an inclusive in that it's for everybody, for all who believe. Now revel in that truth. That should give us confidence as we talk to people who do not yet know Christ. The king reigns for everybody. Believe in him. That's just the introduction. Four main points as we walk through. We'll do these very quickly. Paul begins after his introduction in verses 118 through 425, talking about why everyone needs the gospel. Here's the bad news. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In chapter 1, he even gets to the fact that creation shows that God exists, but people suppress the truth. And God exposes his present wrath by giving people up to do what they want to do. By the time he gets to the end of chapter 1, all the Jewish folks are going, yeah, yeah. And then he gets to chapter 2. How about us Jewish people, he says. And then it becomes a little quiet in the room because he says you have no excuse because you're passing judgment when you yourselves are sinners. And he brings us to that amazing point there that no one does what is good. No one does. No one seeks for God. We're all together under God's wrath. Now, in chapter 1, it's present wrath. When he gets to chapters 2 and 3, talking about the Jewish people, he speaks of judgment, future judgment coming on them. That's the bad news. But then right at the heart of this, he gets into the way that God makes sinners righteous. You know, think about this. How does a holy, perfect, awesome, infinite, amazing God have anything to do with people like us? How does a holy God make sinful people right with him? And that's where the gospel comes in. You, you really look at this, this big words like propitiation, God's wrath satisfied through the death of his own son. Redemption, that's being purchased as a slave off the slave block. Amazing descriptions of the work of Jesus to make sinful people right with God. Righteousness applied to our account when we don't deserve it. That's grace. And that's what he gets to in chapter 1, verse 18 through 425. And we can receive this justification and be right with God, not through our works, but through faith. Just trusting him. Somebody says, yeah, yeah, wait a minute now. Uh, Moses and the law, you know, you got to obey the law to be righteous in God's sight. And Paul says, well, you haven't gone back far enough. Don't you need to think about Abraham, Father Abraham? And then he unpacks this in chapter 4. He says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and it was before the law or circumcision came to be. Now, that's good news. You get to the end of chapter 4 and you say, yeah, but 
How do we live in light of this gospel? Well, that's where chapter 5, verses 1 through chapter 8, verse 39 comes in. Notice in chapter 5, he begins with suffering. And in chapter 8, he concludes with suffering, showing us that this is framing. How do we live the gospel when we're suffering? And Paul knew what suffering was. He was often beaten and through shipwreck. He lists the ways that he suffered. We suffer as a result of our faith. So how do we live in light of that? Well, he says, through the gospel, we enjoy assurance and hope even in our suffering. He talks about in this section of how we are in union with Christ. Chapter 6 is just an amazing chapter um, because he says, we've died with Christ and we've raised with Christ. We, we say this when someone is baptized. We're identifying with Christ in his death. We're raised with him in his resurrection. And now we're in union with him. We, we are in Christ. That term in Christ means we have this present reality of the living God in us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Paul unpacks that in chapters 5 through 8. He speaks of two eras, how Adam's sin brought death and destruction and all these horrible consequences to planet Earth, which we experience every day. But he says, contrast that with Christ and his bringing union and righteousness and life in the Spirit. He talks about the struggle we have with the law The law exposes our sin. In chapter 7, he concludes by saying, the law just makes me wretched. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. These are incredible truths for people like us. But if the gospel is so powerful, Paul, why don't more Jewish people believe? I've been sharing the gospel with my neighbor, you might say, for 30 years. I don't want to hear it. So chapter 9 through 11 answers that question. How does God work despite our inability to see people come to faith, especially in Paul's case, Jews and Gentiles? And so he speaks of this overflow of grace. Paul says, I'm a Jewish person. My heart grieves for my brothers and sisters in the Jewish family, but they've rejected the gospel and they've heard it over and over again. That's why God called them to the Gentiles. But he says, through the jealousy of seeing Gentile people come to faith, Jewish people are provoked to jealousy and a remnant comes in. And Paul, in this passage, and I'm really looking forward to hearing Pastor Matt's sermons on this because this section of Romans is kind of controversial, but it seems as if, as you read it, God has this amazing plan of bringing more and more Gentiles to faith and at the same time bringing more and more Jewish people to faith through somehow this jealousy that's being provoked to the point that all Israel will be saved. God, in the overflow of his grace, has a plan that we can't always see, but he's working it out. 
And then you might ask the question, well, if the gospel's so powerful, how do we live it out just on a day-to-day practice? And so in chapters 12 through 15, Paul gets very practical. He says, well, you have to, in light of all these mercies God has given us in chapters 1 through 11, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he said, this means you recognize that God has given you gifts to share with others. And the church is to be marked by love because of this gospel. We recognize the love God has for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so we are to call to love others, he says in chapter 12. In chapter 13, he says this impacts the way we relate to our government. I had hoped that when I got to 13, he'd say, so Christians don't need to pay taxes. <laughs> Unfortunately, I read, yeah, you got to pay taxes. So I obeyed and uh, got it. By the way, tomorrow is tax day. So I hope you take note of that. But I want you to note the end of chapter 13 where he says, love fulfills the law. And then he says, so wake up. Verses 11 to 14, put on the armor of light, which we just sang about a few minutes ago. And then he gets into this conflict between the weak and the strong and observing days and food. We have our own personal convictions, don't we, that we can argue about. Paul, what Paul is doing is saying the gospel is the core truth. And there's essential truth that we must believe, but personal convictions, gray areas... We need to cut each other slack and love each other in the midst of it. You know, most church fights break out not over core doctrine, but personal convictions and personal preferences. Let's let's face it. It gets very practical here. Pursue unity in the midst of this. And then he concludes it in chapter 16 by saying, you know, I already know many of you in Rome, and I'm looking forward to seeing you. That's what we're going to be looking at as we study the book of Romans. But I want you to think about this. What will Romans do to you? Do you realize that 2,000 years of church history, the book of Romans has powerfully impacted a number of people. Whenever the church experiences the winds of reform, Romans has been behind it. Here's an example. In the fourth century, a young professor of rhetoric In Milan, after years of struggling with lust and pride, sensed the divine command to open the Bible and read the first passage he came to, and what did his eyes fall upon? Romans chapter 13, 13 and 14, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. In an instant, St. Augustine of Hippo 
said, the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. Augustine became one of the greatest theologians, maybe the greatest theologian the church has ever seen. Third century. A millennium later, a thousand years later, a young German monk of the Augustinian order wrestled in the depths of his soul with the sense of sin and God's wrath. Out of compassion, the vicar, his superior, ordered him to establish a new class at Wittenberg University in Germany on the Epistle to Romans and the discovery that the righteous will live by faith in Romans 1.17 propelled this monk, Martin Luther, to launch the greatest reform the church has ever known. Martin Luther went on to write a commentary on the book of Romans. And in the great Methodist revival in England, there's a man named John Wesley who was raised in a devout home. He even came to our country as a missionary to the state of Georgia. But he wrestled with his salvation and had no insurance. And he says, in the evening of May 24th, 1738, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preference to his epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I did, I did, in fact, trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he'd taken away my sins, even mine, <laughs> and saved me from the law and sin and death. Isn't that good? You say, well, these are old guys from the past. What about today? I was just reading in a magazine how in Nepal, there is an amazing growth of the church, and it's coming through the women of the country who sit together eating meals and discussing things and weaving their crafts, and the gospel's being shared with power. Romans has the capacity to change your life. So here's my encouragement. I hope I've somehow inspired you to read this book and absorb it. But how? Okay, let me just give you four quick points. First of all, read it and believe it. Read it. You can read a chapter of the day. It'll take you 16 days. You can read those sections that I just gave you. It'll take you maybe five days. Or... Here is a suggestion. If you have version on your phone, listen to the whole book at one time. Take a walk. It takes about an hour and 15 minutes. You can listen to the whole book. You can hear it in the New International Version, the English Standard Version, the uh, Christian Standard Version, and the New Living Translation. Someone will read it to you. And as you're walking, you can think about these great truths. And when you hear them, believe them. And when you believe them, embrace them. And when you embrace them, absorb them. You'll never regret it. Secondly, memorize Romans. Here's what Martin Luther says. This epistle is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word by word, by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as daily bread for the soul. 
it can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. I can't tell you how many times on hard days I've gone to Romans 8 and just reviewed it, my memory work. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 1. Verse 26. The Spirit prays for us when we don't know how to pray. Get to Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But Lord, I feel so sinful. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things? A couple of verses later, who is it then that will condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died, who arose. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, persecution or trials or heaven and earth or anything in all creation, demonic powers. Now, nothing. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. If you're not a believer yet, Romans can change your life. If you are a believer, Romans can change your life. Believe it, embrace it, memorize it, live it, and then proclaim it. F.F. Bruce was a great New Testament scholar who's gone home to be with the Lord. He said, there's no telling what may happen when people began, begin to study the epistle of Romans. And so I get to these four life questions. Who am I? Well, I'm a new person in Christ. I'm rightly related to God. His spirit lives in me. And I have a new family, a new forever family called the community of believers. Where am I headed? Well, nothing could separate me from Christ's love. He's with me today. He'll be with me forever in the new creation. Where am I headed? And where is my hope? Why am I here? Well, I'm here because saved by grace, my purpose is to delight in his love and his will and to use my gifts as his witness. And where can I find hope? Even in the midst of the suffering that we experience, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you so much for your word. And I just think of Paul's doxology that he gives at the end of uh, his book, the end of this section on chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and the ways beyond tracing out. Who has known your mind, Lord? Who's been your counselor? Who's ever given to you that you have to repay them? From you, through you, for you are all things. And so to you, 
be glory forever and ever. Amen.